Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. We are recording this on the evening of Friday the 7th of February, so it probably won't post until early next week. This is a news episode, and we're going to start with the coronavirus, obviously, and try to focus in particular on Australia's policy response. Then we're going to check in with the latest news on 5G in the wake of the UK decision to allow Huawei to participate in their network, And then we'll finish talking trade, including the WTO and possible trade deals between Australia and both the UK and the EU. Let's get started. So let's begin with what is obviously the biggest story on the planet right now. And I'm sure none of our listeners need any introduction to this topic. So let's try to zoom in on the issues of interest to this podcast. And I count three. The first is the decision to evacuate Australian citizens. The second, the decision to block entry to travellers from China. And third, what, if anything, policy responses by different governments to this crisis tell us about world politics more generally. Dan, I just want to begin by noting that here we are, barely a month into 2020, and the National Security Committee of Cabinet has been meeting almost constantly Mm. So there was none of the usual wait uh, for Australia Day for normal services to be resumed here. And the subjects that are preoccupying ministers are natural disasters, bushfires, and potential pandemics, the coronavirus. So non-traditional security threats certainly making their presence uh, felt. And look, just looking at the faces of senior officials around Canberra at the moment, you can see what a toll this intense start to the year has taken on them and no doubt on the ministers as well. Yeah, I guess there is a bit of rhythm of life into the year in Australia. I mean, everyone slows down in in January and then when school resumes and the the big TV shows start again, Insiders starts again and Four Corners and Q&A, there's sort of a a rhythm to that. Whereas in Canberra, I suppose, people have been working nonstop for the whole summer and so they're absolutely exhausted. Perhaps this is a conversation for another time, Alan, but just to pick up on something you said, which really connects to a theme we've covered several times on the podcast and most recently with Gordon DeBrower. I mean, given what's happened, do we need a dedicated agency, something like the National Security Council in the White House, that has a permanent staff that is ready to handle this kind of work continuously? Well, my my view is still no. I'm a fan of the Westminster system and with every new piece of news coming out of the dysfunction we're seeing in US politics, uh, I've become more so. Mm. Look, the capacity to deal with these questions already exists within the Australian service, uh, public service. The question is how the advice and responses are coordinated. Uh, Cabinet's the democratic mechanism that makes the decision and then responsibility for coordinating the policy advice Uh, from other agencies lies with the Prime Minister's Department and in the case of intelligence and security uh, with ONI. At any given point, this might be being done well or badly, but the problem for me isn't the structure. Mm, Okay, fair enough. Well, 
Let's turn to this first dimension. And over this past week, the first flights evacuating Australians out of the epicentre of the outbreak, which is the city of Wuhan, have left. Now, these Australians now have a 14-day quarantine period on Christmas Island, as I understand it where apparently they are enduring... Oh, they're in the Northern Territory now, are they? Yeah, the yeah. second flight. The second flight. Okay, well, could you, Alan, could you talk us through some of the logistical challenges and the political sensitivities or any other issues concerning a consular operation like this? I, d- I don't think most Australians appreciate just how large and complex an operation this is. Uh, Australia, when you think about what we're trying to do. Australia is trying to extract several hundred Australian citizens almost all of them of Chinese heritage, many of them underage, from an area under quarantine lockdown in China where we don't have a permanent consular presence. So DFAT has had to get people to register, to find out where they are, confirm that they are in fact Australian citizens, deal with the complexities of family relationships where the kids might be Australian citizens but being looked after by their Chinese grandparents and navigate the difficulties of people who might have travelled into China on Chinese passports but still hold Australian passports, ensure that the consular hotline had enough Chinese speakers and then they had to negotiate with the Chinese government heavily preoccupied with its own priorities in order to get Australian staff into the city and then secure permission for evacuation flights. So I'm amazed at the speed and efficiency with which it's been done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And that last point seems especially important to me. Getting foreigners out is going to be the last priority of the Chinese government. I mean, they're worried about their own people and the, the spread of the virus within China. Now, initially, Alan, both senior ministers, I think even the prime minister and DFAT, had indicated that the evacuated Australians would have to pay I think it was $1,000 for the flight out of China. But on Insiders last Sunday, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg said that this wouldn't be the case and that the advice the government had originally received was incorrect. Now, I think just an hour before that, the Home Affairs Minister, Peter Dutton, had, send, had said there was precedent for evacuees bearing some of the cost. Alan, is DFAT collateral damage for, for a 180-degree turn here by the government? I don't think this was the government's finest hour. They obviously made a decision to charge evacuees, as has sometimes been done in the past. Um, from memory, I think uh, people who came out of the US after, the, after Hurricane Katrina were in that category. But then they decided, and I don't know why, but possibly because of the fallout from the decision to quarantine evacuees on Christmas Island, that they didn't want to have to manage that issue as well. So the answer was to blame officials for incorrect advice. Uh, That was always nonsense. From the beginning, the government always had the capacity to impose or to waive uh, such costs. So, look, given what the department had just been through to put the evacuation arrangements in place, I thought it was a rather spineless piece of finger-pointing myself. Yeah, a bit sad. Well, turning to the second angle, on February the 1st, the National Security Committee of Cabinet decided to block all foreigners entering Australia who had been in or travelled through China. The decision was informed by information from top medical officials and followed a similar decision by the United States and other countries have followed suit. I think it's about two dozen now. This is not an unprecedented move for Australia. We blocked 
temporarily travellers from Ebola-affected countries in Africa in 2014. But of course here, the consequences could not be more different. The deputy at the Chinese embassy in Canberra expressed unhappiness with the decision and said that they had been surprised that it had been made. So presumably they were given no warning. The economic consequences for the economy could be substantial, with reports that more than half of Chinese international students at Australian universities are still offshore and thus very likely going to be stranded and unable to commence the new semester in a few weeks' time. And of course we have tourism, which is already reeling from the bushfires, also going to be taking a big hit. Alan, is this... How do I ask this? Is this an easy decision to make, do you think? As in, if the scientists tell you to do it, you just pull the trigger without any hesitation? Well, I'm not sure I'd choose the expression pull the trigger in this case, Darren. Okay. (laughs) But But I do absolutely think it's a decision which any government would primarily draw on the expertise of the health professionals, whatever other considerations like the economic costs were running around in the background. If you take any other course of action, you're open to being extraordinarily vulnerable if something goes wrong. And in cases affecting their health, the public mood is always conservative. So I think the Australian decision was, uh, as you say, pretty much in line with those of other industrialised countries Mm. and the government was Mm. Well, on that on that last point, Alan, looking at this from an international relations perspective, one interesting aspect has been variation across countries in the policy response. A New York Times article, which I'll post on in the show notes, documented some of the, shall we say, milder responses and linked these to China's political influence within the given country. Now, the clearest example of this was Cambodia's Prime Minister Hun Sen who told a news conference that, and I'm quoting the article here, quote, he would kick out anyone who was wearing a surgical mask because such measures were creating an unwarranted climate of fear, end quote. The Philippines' president, Rodrigo Duterte, initially stated that there was no need to stop visitors coming from China before reversing his decision a few days later after receiving criticisms from medical experts and also following the first death outside of China from the virus happening in the Philippines. There are differing responses in countries like Myanmar and Thailand and Indonesia, which are also discussed in the article. And I saw a different piece in Quartz, which discussed criticism of the Ethiopian government for not stopping flights from China. So given the Chinese government is highly sensitive to anything it perceives as a threat to its legitimacy... It seems that politics in a catastrophe like this is unavoidable. So what in Australia could say is a fairly mild criticism from the Deputy Chief of Mission? I presume, or I'm I'm wondering whether there might be far stronger diplomatic pressure in other countries, many, if not most of which, will also be less able to control outbreaks compared with Australia. What do you think, Alan? Well, I suppose that's right, but I I wouldn't place so much weight on Chinese diplomatic pressure as on a desire on the part of those Southeast Asian governments to send their own signals of uh, alignment to Beijing and to protect their own tourism industries. Hong Kong, you can now see, has closed most crossings and is quarantining inbound arrivals. And if there was one place Beijing could demonstrate pressure, it was there. Mm. 
Yeah, interesting. I would note that Xi Jinping himself disappeared from public view for about a week at the end of January and the beginning of February, um, in that there were no new images of him in the leading propaganda outlets. Now, when this happens, it always leads to rampant speculation about what's going on in Chinese politics, especially now at such a crucial time. But he duly reappeared, and those first images were on television, on CCTV, and they were him meeting the Cambodian Prime Minister, nary a face mask in sight. So Prime Minister Hun Sen, I suppose, had a particular incentive not to react strongly to the virus, given he was visiting Beijing very shortly thereafter. And actually, there's one more angle before we move on to the next story I wanted to raise for our, our listeners to, to monitor. Yesterday, Dr. Li Wenliang died of the virus in Wuhan. And this is a particularly tragic story as he was one of the eight doctors who initially raised concerns about an outbreak of a new virus in late December and was arrested and reprimanded by authorities. And what's notable is that following his death, there's been an unprecedented outpouring of grief in China. And that has sort of spilled into frustration that Chinese citizens have had with the authorities and how the situation is being managed, and perhaps even more generally. So the government is really on the back foot here, and I think that's best illustrated by the fact that after news of his death broke, it was subsequently removed from the internet across several different publications for a few hours and then put back up again. And people are saying that this is the greatest challenge that the CCP has faced since 1989. So it's definitely something I think worth watching from that angle as well as the obvious health dimension. But let's move on uh, to our second story, which is Huawei and 5G. And the latest development in this story, of course, is the decision by the UK government to allow Huawei to participate in the building of their network. Now, this, of course, follows significant pressure from both Washington and Beijing regarding what to do. And the ultimate decision was to allow Huawei into the periphery, but not the core of the network, keep it out of critical systems and cap its market share at 35%. Now, London insists that there is going to be or is already a rigorous security regime in place that can deal with the fact that Huawei is, in the UK's own words, a high-risk vendor. And part of that strategy is going to involve diversifying supply chains. Of course, Huawei already has a long history in the UK as it helped build its 4G network. Now, this issue isn't over for the for the Brits. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is facing a backlash from China sceptics in his Conservative Party who are seeking assurances that the government will work to reduce Huawei's role over time. And they have some leverage because this issue will come before Parliament and different parliamentary votes. So, Alan... Can I start with your general reaction to this decision? What was most interesting to you about it? Look, there are several interesting dimensions to this. I'm in the difficult position of knowing and trusting the judgments of some of the British players in this decision and knowing and trusting the judgments of some of the Australian players. But of course, they come to very different conclusions and I have zero information or capacity to judge the details. The decision can't, I think, really be properly framed as one of politicians looking for cheap 5G deals versus security specialists. There are security people speaking on both sides, like the former head of the British Signals Intelligence Agency, GCHQ. Mm. The decision you know, clearly revolves around the degree of risk the British and Australian authorities think is involved and are prepared to tolerate compared with the 
technological, financial and commercial competitive advantages of having a company like Huawei involved somewhere in the 5G mix. So it's obviously not simple, but whatever you think of the UK decision, I don't don't think it's reckless. There's obviously an on-balance decision here. What what was your own reaction? It always seemed more difficult for the UK to exclude Huawei entirely, given their historical involvement in the network. And I suppose, Alan, whereas you're most interested in, in how officials are seeing this, I'm most interested in the politics of it, and the backlash within the Conservative Party really interests me, because I think if enough lawmakers decide that they want Huawei out, then they may have the leverage to, to, to succeed. And there is an interesting tension, I think, here between the executive and legislative branches of government. You know, my sense is that, and as you've described, Alan, that the executive branch, you know, officials and political leaders are trying to take the broadest possible perspective that balances all these different considerations, and they're going to look for solutions that allow for the benefits to be enjoyed while managing the risks. Individual lawmakers, on the other hand, can afford to be much more narrowly focused and may indeed have strong political incentives to be tough on China, for example. And so for every front page news story that details some alleged wrongdoing by Chinese companies or espionage acts, this only heightens the sense of insecurity, and we've discussed this obviously on the podcast before, strengthening these forces. And you you might come to a point where you cross a tipping point where no amount of Chinese lobbying or projections of how much more expensive it will be will matter. And one wonders if leaders like Boris Johnson might be relieved, actually, to have their parliaments veto their own decision. In political science, we call this hands-tying. It's much easier, in theory at least, to explain a decision to your foreign counterpart if it's not actually yours, but driven by domestic politics out of your control. And I, I do wonder whether a lot of Western countries, and you're seeing these movements in Europe, especially in Germany as well, might end up with a de facto exclusion of Huawei over the median turn for these political reasons. Anyway, let's turn to the Australian angle on this. And can I begin, Alan, with an interesting intervention by four Australian MPs, Andrew Hasty, Tim Wilson, James Patterson, all from the Liberal Party, but also from the ALP side, we have Kimberly Kitching, each of whom issued statements to the Times of London, explaining why Australia had reached its own 5G decision. And Al, I'm used to members of Congress taking actions like these, and indeed here a bipartisan group of 42 US lawmakers wrote a letter on the 30th of January urging the UK to reverse the decision. But to me it seems unusual that Australian MPs would do something similar. Is there much of a precedent for this? Well, I can't think of any. I've racked my brains and uh, and I just can't think of any, even going back to issues like the Iraq war. Mm. It's really unusual to get public advocacy as opposed to private argument, though even there it's unusual, against a decision by another Five Eyes ally. And here we have senior Australian parliamentarians, most of them from the party philosophically aligned with the British Conservatives, going to the media in the UK to try to overturn a decision by the British government. So, no, these are strange (laughs) times. I still have difficulty with the way the intelligence partnership between the US, UK, Australia, Canada and New Zealand is being so lightly tossed around in the public discourse, Darren. 
I mean, this is quite a recent development. I've always believed that the idea that you treat information about your own intelligence capabilities and relationships with great discretion has a lot to commend it. But, uh, you know, here we're seeing Five Eyes uh, headlines all over the place. I don't think, by the way, you didn't ask the question, but I'll answer it, that the British decision will lead to the collapse of the intelligence sharing arrangement or any other real damage, despite the warnings that were issued. Mm, mm. The other notable intervention in Australia came from Simeon Gilding, a recently retired member of the Australian Signals Directorate, where I understand he was very senior in the organisation. Gilding penned a lengthy and what I think was a very thoughtful and nuanced piece for the Aspie Strategist blog, calling the UK decision disappointing. Gilding explained that he had been part of the team tasked with trying to design a set of cybersecurity controls that would allow Huawei's participation in Australia. And if I can quote his piece, we developed pages of cybersecurity mitigation measures to see if it was possible to prevent a sophisticated state actor from accessing our networks through a vendor. But we failed. We asked ourselves, if we had the powers akin to the 2017 Chinese intelligence law to direct a company which supplies 5G equipment to telco networks, what could we do with that and could anyone stop us? We concluded that we could be awesome. No one would know, and if they did, we could plausibly deny our activities, safe in the knowledge that it would be too late to reverse billions of dollars worth of investment. End quote. Now, this intervention attracted global attention, and like the MPs previously, it also seems unusual to me, given that Gilding had just been in government and he had just been working on this sensitive area. So I'd love to get Gilding on the podcast to ask him directly, but for the moment, Alan, what's the precedent here? And who do you think the intended audience and specific objective was for writing a piece like this? Well, again, it was a very unusual piece of public advocacy by a senior former intelligence official and an intervention you would have to think that was formally sanctioned by the government. I doubt very much that Simeon could have written the piece without getting it ticked off in some way. Australian officials speaking privately insist there are, and I think this has been in the public, well, it's been in the public debate as well, insist there are divisions on the British side on the Huawei question. And so presumably this, like the intervention of the MPs, was intended to or had the effect of playing into this. Hmm, well, long-time listeners will recall episode 13 from March last year where we discussed the Five Eyes intelligence grouping and some of the implications of Huawei being part of the telco network of a Five Eyes member. And if I remember correctly, Alan, I think you also said back then that you were not too concerned that the Five Eyes grouping would, would break up. So it's good that you're still confident about that 12 months later. Now, of course, Huawei has used the UK decision to renew pressure on the Australian government to reverse our decision. What do you see as Australia's international role on this issue going forward, Alan? I've got no problem with decisions we take in our own national interest, and I see no likelihood of any reversal of the Australian decision on Huawei and 5G. But I can't see Australian interests being served by identifying ourselves as the lead crusader 
on all of this. I suspect you have a slightly different uh, take on this, though, Darren. Yeah, maybe not Crusader, but both the Australian government and the UK government designated Huawei as a high-risk vendor because of its relationship with or the power that the Chinese Communist Party has over all Chinese companies. And I accept that assessment. I think that if you combine that assessment with the premise that market concentration is not a good thing, then it is in Australia's interests that that Huawei does not become the global dominating player in this market, that you will need a handful at least of strong service providers and equipment providers. But Huawei has very attractive offerings, and I understand why many countries, especially in the developing world, will prioritise the economic dimensions of this issue over the hard-to-pin-down national security risks. The decisions made by some of these states, and I think a good example here is India, will be pivotal to ensuring that there is a balanced global market. And so I think to the extent that we do have a, a global strategy, it has to be sort of how do we want the global market to develop and what influence can we leverage on that issue? So the contest is shifting to these technological swing states, you might call them. And this is where I think I disagree with you a little bit, Alan, that whether we like it or not, we are already at the forefront of this issue because we acted so early and we have done the hard work. We've assessed the risks. And so I see a strong interest in us sharing this information. But following on from my previous comment, this is not necessarily just about persuading elite bureaucrats but it's about informing political leaders and the general public. And since we're seeing in the UK and also in Germany that it's a legislative response that might ultimately determine the final decision. So domestic politics may be the most powerful vector here. And while no question it is a fraught terrain for international diplomacy, foreign interference is a genuine concern in other areas, as we've discussed, the simple act of sharing information sharing one's own experience could be quite powerful and could be in our interest. Anyway, that's that's my piece. Let's move on to the third issue, another very interesting one, and that's trade. Now, we could easily spend an entire episode on trade alone. The big news here is that on the 10th of December of last year, 2019, the WTO's appellate body ceased to function as the terms of two of its three judges expired without agreed-upon replacements. So this means that disputes brought before the WTO and litigated and decided upon in the first instance are then appealed will sit in legal limbo indefinitely. And I guess you can presume that governments will therefore feel somewhat freer to violate WTO rules in the future. Now, this of course happened because the Trump administration blocked the appointment of new judges citing long-standing concerns regarding the way the appellate body operates, both substantively and procedurally. Our Trade Minister, Simon Birmingham, said back in December that Australia was disappointed with these events and warned of the risk that the WTO would be turned into a, quote, might is right body. On the sidelines of the World Economic Forum in Davos a few weeks ago, A group of countries, including the EU, China, Brazil, South Korea and Australia, said in a statement that they plan to negotiate an interim appellate process. Previously, the EU had announced appeals agreements of this nature, which largely copied the appellate body's structure, and it had done this with Norway and Canada. 
Now, these have been criticised by the US as legitimising what Washington sees as the flaws in the current system. And as he left Davos, President Trump flagged dramatic reforms. And just this week, the WTO Director General Roberto Azevedo said while attending a conference in D.C., that there is a sense of urgency for reform on both sides. And there are a series of reform proposals, concrete proposals on the table, and Australia has previously expressed its support and indeed a willingness to lead and sponsor some of these. So, Alan, reasonable people will disagree on whether the US concerns are legitimate, though the Trump administration's approach to solving the problem by paralysing the entire organisation obviously has far less support. What is your headline assessment of this situation? I think Simon Birmingham has shown himself to be a trade minister of real weight and substance for Australia. If you had to pick an area where some important Australian leadership is being shown in the world in the multilateral area, uh, I'd pick trade. Mm. You can go back to the Australian work with Japan in bringing the Trans-Pacific Partnership yep. To completion, even though the US had backed out of it. And as you've been explaining, you can see it in the active Australian efforts to help keep the WTO appellate system working despite the havoc uh, being wrought by the uh, Trump administration. And it's also evident in Birmingham's work with Japan and Singapore to keep the critical WTO negotiations on electronic commerce uh, going forward. I find these efforts to build a parallel structure fascinating. Ultimately, if you cannot persuade the United States that it's in their interests to maintain the given structure, the existing structure, and I'm sure Australia is trying, but at some point you have to move on. So how do you see Australia's position on this? Are such minilateral arrangements that are sort of built upon the structure of long-standing agreements, are they the most plausible path forward to preserve some kind of rules-based system? They're not a path forward, but they are the creation of a sanctuary in which we can shelter while uh, something else is being worked out. <laughs> Although I guess it's, it's amazing in life how many long-term solutions that were initially conceived as temporary fixes, as shelters, while a more permanent option was sorted out, never actually end up being the, the new status quo because that permanent solution never eventuates. So I do wonder, you know, once this parallel Quite option right. is, is utilised, <laughs> if it actually creates a new model, and especially if Trump wins a re-election, you would think. Yeah, we will see. But it's good that <laughs> Australia is in on the ground floor of some of this thinking. Yeah, yeah. A quick question on Washington's tactics, Alan. There is an argument that the confrontational approach taken by the White House was the only way to get action in a slow-moving body like the WTO and that it needed a degree of brinkmanship. Do you have any time for this argument at all? I mean, asked another way, what role do coercive threats by powerful states play, if any, in efforts to reform institutions? Well, the question isn't whether coercive threats by powerful states can have an impact. Yes, is the answer there. The question is whether those coercive threats are the only way to bring about change and, secondly, the nature of the particular change that's being sought. Mm, well, like, I guess on that second point, the particular change being sought now isn't incremental. It's not slow and gradual. It is radical. And this isn't just Trump on the right. It's Sanders and, and Warren on the left. Yet radical change is, is really front and centre of both domestic and international agendas across the Western world. Now, I fully appreciate that most of the time radical change is not a great way 
to run a country or a community of nation states. But this is the politics here, and, and I guess the question is, is how you channel them. But anyway, sticking to the trade theme, this coming month will be an important one for Australia on two sets of free trade agreement, FTA and negotiations. This week, the UK Foreign Secretary arrives in Canberra to build a momentum for an FTA within a year, and negotiations are also going to continue with the European Union. So I've got one question for you about each, Alan. On the UK, does the history and goodwill between the two countries and or the unique circumstance of Brexit make this a, a different type of negotiation for Australia? And if so, how? Uh, no. No. Okay. If Donald Trump has reminded us of anything, it's that trade agreements make us confront the clash of national interests at the most basic level. There's little room for sentiment here. So while issuing positive sounding press statements, Simon Birmingham has quietly poured cold water on some of the wilder speculation about what a post a Brexit trade okay. agreement with the UK might provide. He noted vaguely in one uh, statement, I was reading, uh, having more options can only be a good thing for our primary producers, which doesn't sound to me like a singing endorsement. <laughs> I think if you sum up his position, it is useful but modest opportunities above all in the area of agriculture. And in that area, we're going to face uh, stern resistance from uh, British farmers. So that's that's all good, can be a benefit, but none of it will be a substitute for our large markets in China, especially in the rest of Asia. Mm, okay, well, on the EU agreement, we have France that had stated publicly that any FTA with Australia would need to be tied to Australia's policy on climate change. And you have them calling for highly ambitious action. Yet the EU's representative to Australia, Michael Pulch, later said that climate change would be unlikely to get in the way of a deal. You know, what do you make of this possibility? Well, it's a reminder that climate change pervades so many areas of our international diplomacy from the Pacific step up to trade arrangements. Climate change might not get in the way of a trade deal with the EU, but we sure as hell won't get any agreement without a strong environmental dimension to it. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's wrap up the podcast there and finish off with our final section, reading, listening and watching. Alan, I've got a feeling you're going to be returning to what you began reading in our last episode. Am I right? Yeah, look, I foreshadowed this last time, but I've now finished reading The Light That Failed, A Reckoning by Ivan Krustev and Peter Holmes. Some books deepen your understanding of an issue, but there are a valuable few which change your understanding. And, and this was one of those for me. The book is a reflection by two scholars, uh, Krustev, who's a Bulgarian political scientist now in Vienna, I think, and Holmes, a law professor at NYU, about why it is that liberalism failed to take root after the end of the Cold War in 1989, how and why it generated a populist and nativist reaction in East Europe and Russia, and the impact that then had in turn on the United States, and why China changes things again. The answers it suggests are pretty persuasive to me, including on some of the questions you've been asking about on uh, sovereignty, mm. uh, Darren. Mm. 
just one single fascinating point among many others for me that I might mention. The, the authors make a powerful case that the reason for the emergence of populism in states uh, like uh, Poland and Hungary was not at all concern about an influx of new immigrants, of whom there were very few, but a deeper anxiety about the impact of emigration and depopulation in those countries. The, the book also reminded me of how regrettably rare European and especially East European voices have been in the international policy debate in Australia, or maybe it's just, just in my own reading. But in any case, it's a really strong recommendation from me. Great. Well, I was going to recommend a short story in The New Yorker called Cat Person by Kristen Rupenian from about 2017. But instead, I'm going to recommend a pair of, of blog posts. The first Why? Is... Why? <laughs> Cat Person sounds fantastic. Uh, Alan, look, go and have a read, but enter at your own risk. I wasn't sure that the listeners of this podcast would be quite ready for the, the, the topic of the short story, but it is a very entertaining one. And I will simply I'll put it in the show notes so people can click, but you know, click at your uh, at your own risk. It it really involves corners of the internet, Alan, that you and I don't tread very much. But it did make a lot of noise on the internet when it got released a few years ago. But let me let me stick to my I changed my mind, and these two blog posts. The first one is from Tanner Greer, and he has a blog called Scholars Stage, and it's entitled "Public Intellectuals Have Short Shelf Lives, But Why." And then second, there is a response from Tyler Cohen, who's definitely my favorite public intellectual. And Greer's post basically picks up on a topic I've mentioned previously in the recommendation section of this podcast, actually, on the distinction between fluid and crystallized intelligence. And that you know, fluid intelligence is the fount of creativity and it sort of maximizes in your early part of your career. And crystallized intelligence, or what you might think of as wisdom, coming later in life. And how those two types of intelligence lend themselves to different types of jobs. So he links that distinction to the decline of public intellectuals over time. And the, the bigger point here is that it, it's very hard to generate and implement new ideas within the same field for an entire career. And, and so he sort of is suggesting that, that public intellectuals might need to reinvent themselves to become, to sort of stay relevant and stay at the forefront of the public debate. Cohen, on the other hand, offers some tips for how you could stay there if you, if you wanted to. So they're both very much worth reading and Cat Person is too if you're interested in short story. Anyway, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank AAA intern Isabel Hancock for her help with research and audio editing and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thanks and talk to you again soon. <laughs>